Well, he meant it when he said it. Not figuratively, abstractly, or hypothetically, but literally, concretely, really. So real, in fact, that you could reach out and touch these words. I am the resurrection and the life. The word, the first word, the last word, the only word. Jesus, the word. Death thought it had the final word. Overcame the word. Left the followers of the way without words. All signs pointed to evil's victory. Nails, cross, darkness, death, tomb. But we can't always trust what we see. We must remember the words of the word. I am the resurrection and the life. You see, Friday was way too soon for evil to celebrate. The victory had yet to be won. Because after Friday comes Saturday. And after Saturday, Sunday. But not just any Sunday. Resurrection Sunday. The day of all days. The day of the empty tomb. The day of fulfillment. The day of redemption. The day that gave birth to the deepest, widest, longest, highest of hopes. The day life overcame death. Once for all, one for all. So where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? You've been swallowed up by true love, true joy, true peace, true life, true God. So if you are wondering if there is more to this life than this life, there is. And the more has a name. Jesus. He meant what he said. I am the resurrection and the life. Amen? This message this morning is for all those who have ever wanted more. It's for all those who have ever worked for more, cried for more, longed for more, prayed for more. It's for all who have ever thought there has to be more to life than this. And so this message is for every single kid and student and parent and man and woman and family and each and every one of us because we have all longed for more. And we've even demanded, more please. If you left last week's One Church Sunday service saying, I hope for more of that, I am convinced here and we are convinced on staff that there is more where that has come from. So today, more is available to you, right where you are and just as you are. The more that we're talking about is not some feeling, it's not some force, it's not some experience, but the more is personal, the more is real, and the more is not a named thing, but a named person. And as I said in the opening words, the more has a name, capital M-O-R-E, and his name is Jesus. And so this morning, you are invited to come and see not what this more is, but who this more is. And Jesus shows us the way to come to him. And so today, we are going to look at first, what is the main avenue that will help us experience more? And then secondly, we'll look at what is the primary obstacle that is keeping each and every one of us from experiencing this more on a regular day-to-day basis. And then I'm going to show, share a little bit from my own experience from about this past year about how we have been starting to experience more than we ever have before. And my hope and prayer is that each and every one of us, as we leave this place today, would be able to take that next step toward experiencing more Jesus. So as we begin, I invite you to take a look at the screen and see if you can fill in the blanks of this sentence that we've put up here. To experience more, 
What do we need to do more of? And what do we need to do less of? Now, this statement might look a little too formulaic or reductionistic, but I want to assure you that experiencing more of God and life with him is not complicated to understand. It's just very challenging to live. But there is no greater challenge in this world that you could ever embark on than living for more. So to experience more, first, we need to love more. We need to love more. How many of you guys guessed love is the first one, yeah? I'll give yourselves a round of applause. There you go. No. You probably could figure this out for a few reasons. One, you got like a one in three chance up here if it says more. Life, love, spirit. So it's like one in three. Second thing, the reason you might have been able to guess that and you might not have been surprised, is that the church, if you've ever been in church for any length of time or know anything about Christianity and what it's all about, you know that it's supposed to be a faith and relationship based on love. Today we're going to be looking through the first uh, New Testament book of 1 John in chapter 4 primarily, and it tells us a lot about how love is the center of what faith is all about. Let's look here to 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed to us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And in this, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. So here we learn three pretty explicit things for why love is central. First, our identity is beloved. That's who you are. You are loved and you are loved, secondly, by our God who is love. Love is not God, but God is love. His very character and essence is that he is a loving God. And then thirdly, we see that our calling is to love, just as God loved us. So to experience more, we must love more, because love is our fundamental identity, our God himself is love, and love is our highest calling. We will never experience any more than we currently are unless we are continually growing to become more loving people. So that's kind of the second reason you might not be surprised that we need to love more to experience more. And the third one is all of us have listened to pop music or seen pop culture and everyone seems to think that love is the answer to everything. You can think of song after song that probably deals with love in this way. And so I thought I'd pick one of those just to illustrate today. And it's from probably most people's, one of their favorite bands, The Beatles. And the song I'm talking about is All You Need Is Love. All You Need Is Love. Here's how it goes. You're going to love this. Love, love, love. And it repeats like 50 times. Love. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. Nothing you can sing that can't be sung. Nothing you can say, but you can learn how to play the game. It's easy. Nothing you can make that can't be made. No one you can save that can't be saved. Nothing you can do, but you can learn how to be you in time. It's easy. What do you need? All you need is love. All you need is love. Love is all you need. 
Love is all you need. And they say, it's easy. It's easy. Is loving other people easy? Is loving easy? Not, be, not with there's other people involved in the equation. <laughs> so if they think love is really that easy, then it must all boil down to what we mean by love. In his commentary to 1 John, Eugene Peterson writes about love and God and the inseparable connection between both God and love and how this love thing might not be as easy as the Beatles try and make it. Here's what Peterson writes. The two most difficult things to get straight in life are love and God. More often than not, the mess people make of their lives can be traced to failure or stupidity or meanness in one or both of these areas. The basic and biblical Christian conviction is that the two subjects are intricately related. If we want to deal with God the right way, we have to learn to love the right way. If we want to love the right way, then we have to learn to deal with God the right way. God and love cannot be separated. The two hardest things to get straight in life, and I think Peterson is right by saying they're love and God. If you look at the world's biggest issues, maybe the biggest issues of people that you know or your own problems, you can probably see that somehow or somewhere along the line, there's been a misunderstanding, a misrepresentation, or a misappropriation of either God or love. Peterson goes on to say, but Jesus shows us the mature outworking of love. In Jesus, God and love are linked accurately, intricately, and indissolubly. But there are always people around who don't want to be pinned down to the God Jesus reveals or to the love that Jesus reveals. They want to make up their own idea about God. And they want to make up their own style of what love is. And to know this is huge for us. Because that they that he's talking about, that's us. That day is us. We are all guilty of this. We define God the way that we want him to be. And we have made love up to be what we want it to be instead of how it's been revealed in Jesus. So to experience more, we need to love more. But in order to love more, we actually need to know what love is. And one of the best ways to know what love is is to know what love isn't. Here are a few things that love merely isn't. First, love is not merely preference what you enjoy or what you like, you know, what you pick over one thing over another. As in, I love Chipotle way more than I love Qdoba. <laughs> and if you feel that way, then you know what it like, is like to feel and to be right, okay? <laughs> the, popular <clothing> company, <laughs> the popular clothing company based here in Massachusetts, Life is Good, has as their motto, do what you love and love what you do. And that's not a bad thing, but is loving all about just doing what we like and what we prefer or is there something far more to it love is not merely preference love is not merely sentimentality love is not the same thing as just being nostalgic about something it's not just those warm sweet memories love is not merely what you find in hallmark cards or what you see on lifetime movie specials sentimentality is not merely love it's not necessarily a bad thing but it does not come close to representing the strength that is inherent in true love. Love is not sentimentality. Love is not merely, there we go, politeness either. <laughs> love is not just having good manners or being generally considerate or nice. 
Biblical love goes way beyond just being friendly. And love is not merely emotional either. It's not just that good feeling. It's not just an attraction towards someone or something. Love is not anywhere close to the same thing as feelings of lust. Don't let yourself ever be confused by that. Love is not a feeling, an emotion, or an attraction. So then what is love? I believe that real love, biblically defined love, is doing what Jesus did. That's love, doing what Jesus did. Love is is an action. And love, as Jesus has done it, is actually quite unnatural to us. One of my favorite moments from last week's baptisms and our One Church Sunday was seeing one of our students, Caroline, get baptized. She wrote on the sign that she held up this phrase, love moves, love moves. And she's not talking about love moves like the little (gasps) kind of thing like that. No, she's talking about how love really moves, just like Christ loved us. That was the phrase we used for a middle school retreat a couple years ago. And all throughout the weekend, I try and just pound this idea into the middle schoolers' minds. And so I'd ask them, what does love do? And then they would yell out, love moves. Let me try that with you guys. He said, what does love do? Nicely done. Well done. Yeah. And how does love move? Well, 1 John 3.16 tells us in a very powerful way. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. This is what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life. This is the truest and the best definition of love that you will ever find. Love is self-giving. We truly love when we give ourselves away for the highest good of others, just as Jesus gave himself for us. So don't mistake anything else for love. And often when we think about love, we also think about the word passion. Now passion seems to be what everybody's talking about these days. I want to find something I'm passionate about doing. Bosses want to find people who are passionate about their work because they end up doing their jobs better. But passion isn't just about energy or just belief in something. It goes far beyond that. The root word for, the, for passion from the Latin is kind of could be defined like this. Passion is love so intense that suffering is of no consequence. Passion is love so intense that suffering is of no consequence. That's why the last days in Jesus' life, in his arrest, his crucifixion, his death, are called the passion. God loved us. God loved you so much. And his love was so intense that suffering for you was of no consequence to him. That's what real love is all about. That kind of love isn't so easy, is it? Going to the cross. That's what Jesus how he tells us what real love is. Love doesn't look for the way that doesn't hurt so much. Love looks for the way that heals the most. How might God be calling you to be more loving here and now and today? So this kind of self-giving, passionate love as embodied by Jesus is our highest calling. So to experience more, We first need to love more. Love is the avenue to more. And then secondly, in order for us to love more, we didn't need to remove anything in our lives that gets in the way of us being more loving. And I'm convinced that the greatest inhibitor of true Christ-like self-giving love and thus the greatest obstacle to more is fear. Fear. 
1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. So to experience more, we need to love more and fear less. How much more we experience is dependent on how much more we love. And how much more we love is dependent on how much less we fear. Fear and love have a reciprocal relationship. More love equals less fear. More fear equals less love. Our lives are not large enough for both fear and love to coexist. You can't have one with the other. Fear keeps us from love because fear breeds sin. Fear gives birth to sin. Just think about the last harmful or hurtful thing you might have done or said to somebody. I bet if you peeled back the layer a little bit here, you might see that in some way you might have felt threatened. You might have felt afraid. You might have felt that you might get displaced or might not be heard or that something might cause you to be wronged or harmed. There might have been some fear that caused you to react the way that you did. What causes you to be afraid? The most dangerous or potent fears are the ones that we are either unaware of or the ones that we deny that we have. And we all have fears. I'm not talking about fears like spiders or snakes or public speaking, but things like feeling insignificant, going unnoticed, being ridiculed, failure, not reaching your potential, disappointing someone, being inadequate, being exposed. There's been a lot of literature recently written about children that who have experienced neglect or trauma can only begin to thrive and to grow when they feel safe. When children do not feel safe, the primitive parts of their brains which long for basic needs to be met actually incapacitate the parts of the brain that enabled higher functioning and learning to occur. You cannot learn when you're afraid. Most experts in these areas agree that the behavioral issues that most of these children display stem from their deep-seated fears. Fear overflows into bad behavior. And in like manner, our fears overflow into sin. And sin is what keeps us from love, and love is what keeps us from experiencing more. So if we want more, we need to rid our lives of fear. And if that was easy, I think we all would have done that already. But trying to rid ourselves of fear is actually pretty scary. But it's not, I believe, by God's grace, an impossible thing to overcome. And so I want to use the rest of our time here just to look at two ways that we can overcome fear. And so to fear less, first, we need to really trust God. We really need to trust God. A lot of us say we trust God, but we easily do things constantly that are against what God would want us to do. Like it's very explicit in the scriptures that we're supposed to not worry. And most of us don't worry when there's nothing to worry about. But once there's something to worry about, we start to worry all the time. Probably the command that we break the most, and Jesus says over and over and over again, is fear not. He says, fear not, do not fear, don't be afraid. 
One situation, Jesus gets done teaching about them not fearing to the disciples. And they're out on the boat, and Jesus is asleep at the stern, and this big storm starts moving through. Waves are crashing up into the boat, and the disciples do what? They start to get afraid, naturally. And and they go to Jesus and say, we're going to die. Can you do something? And Jesus, as you know in this story, he calms the storm, and then he tells them, don't be afraid. I recently heard uh, Pastor Andy Stanley talk about this story, and he said, your mama will tell you, don't be afraid because there's nothing to fear. Like, there's no boogeyman or anything like that. That's what your mama says. But Jesus says, do not fear even when there are reasons to be afraid. Every time Jesus tells them not to be afraid, they actually should be afraid. So how can I not be afraid when I should be afraid? How do we do this, Jesus? Well, I think here's how we can begin to start to do this more and more. Jesus has overcome what most of us ultimately fear. And our ultimate fear is death. We're afraid to die, and why wouldn't we be? But as I said at the start of this sermon, the good news of the gospel is that even when it looks like death has the final word, it clearly doesn't. Jesus went to the grave, and he put death itself to death by his resurrection, and when he returns, he promises that death itself is going to be no more because one day we will never, ever need to attend another funeral. But while that gives us hope for the future, Jesus tells us now that those who believe in him will never taste death. Yeah, our bodies might die, but he says the actual sting of death is not something that we're going to experience as believers My hero, Dallas Willard, passed away a couple of years ago from pancreatic cancer. And months leading up to his death, he started to say things like this. It might be a long time after I die till I realize I'm dead. We're like, what? (laughs) And he said, because it says believers will never taste death. And I believe that promise to be true. That it might be a long time after I die before I realize I'm dead. It's been two years. I wonder if, he's, if he knows he's dead yet. <laughs> but we can trust Jesus, can't we? What the evil forces of our world try to get us to do more than anything else is to fear, to be anxious, to worry, to be afraid. And I believe that's their primary tactic against us, to try and steal our joy and rob us from more. But Jesus, I believe, says do not fear over and over and over again as a way for us to combat that fear that we're tempted to constantly find ourselves in. When you find yourself being tempted to fear, let me just offer a couple truths of Scripture that I would encourage you memorize, that you plaster someplace that you can constantly see so that you remember that we don't need to fear. One of those verses that has been huge for me is 2 Timothy 1.7. It just says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-discipline. Fear is not from God. Love is from God. And God, through his Holy Spirit, has given us power to overcome the fears that we believe are going to harm us or hurt our lives. So we don't need to be afraid. And a second passage that I look to often to find comfort and hope and strength is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6. It says this, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can anyone do to me? If God is on our side, if God is with us, then no matter what, no person, no disease, no problem can really do anything to us, can they? Yeah, it might cause some temporal suffering in this life, but this life 
is not all that there is. There is more to this life than this life. And we will have 50 billion years in the future to be able to enjoy all the joy that Jesus offers us. So we can endure now. So do you really trust God? That trust will certainly be put to test. But as you really trust him, that fear will begin to dissipate. So to fear less, we need to really trust God. And then secondly, we need to receive the love of God. All message long, we have been saying that God loves you. But do you really believe that? Take a moment just to think about what God thinks about when God thinks about you. When you come to God's mind, what do you think about? What does he think about? So many of us think that God is angry with us, that he's upset with us, and he just flat out doesn't like us. I can't believe how many people I invite to church that just say these very words. Oh, if I went to church, man, the whole roof is going to cave in on me. You know, if, if I went to church, this whole place would just burn up in flames. If I went to church, I think I'd spontaneously combust. And I'm really hoping that person comes to church. I'd love to see that. That'd be crazy. No. No, that's, that's not what God thinks about us when he thinks about us. He thinks about us as his sons and daughters who he loves unconditionally. Going back to 1 John, here's what we read. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. If it wasn't for what Jesus has done for us, we'd have every reason to be afraid. But because of what he has done, this message is not about fearing not. Instead, if he hadn't done anything for us, I'd probably say, hey, fear a lot. But since Jesus has done this for us, when we stand before God, and we all will one day, we can have boldness because God will see us the very way that he sees Jesus, perfect, loved, fulfilling every part of the law. Jesus did for us what we never could have done for ourselves. And this is just a gift for us to receive. There's nothing we can do to earn it. It is an unconditional love. And this is what makes Christianity so unique. The Buddhist eightfold path the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, and the Muslim code of law, each of these offers a way for you to earn approval. But only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional because it is. God loves you. God loves you. I challenge you to receive that today, no matter what you've done, no matter what your past is, no matter who you think you are. God loves you. Only by receiving God's love for us can we begin to overcome the fear in our lives. So to experience more, we need to love more and fear less. And we can fear less as we really trust God and receive his love for us. Well, over the past year, there has been no lesson that I have needed to learn more than this one right here. Love more and fear less. As many of you have heard me share here, We've been in the process of adopting from South Africa for some time now. And last summer, we were given the chance to adopt a, a local child here uh, who was actually in our home for some time. But we had later learned that we would not be able to legally complete this adoption. And it was the most devastating 
and dark season of life that we've ever gone through, and no doubt about it, it was the hardest thing that we have ever experienced. Near the end of summer, it was recommended to me that we carve out some time, that I carve out some time just to get away, to go on some retreats throughout this year, to spend a couple days away with the Lord, to heal, and just to be with him. So I joined a cohort of some ministry leaders around the area for four retreats down in Sharon, Mass. this year. And a big theme for the first of these retreats in September was about the relationship between fear and love. And we had a time to share in our small groups together, and we had a chance to acknowledge what are some of the fears that we're actually experiencing. And I talked about some of these fears. I fear that this call that God's placed in our life for us to be adoptive parents, that it might not happen. I fear that all this money we spent might be wasted. I fear that I'm a failure. And as I was sharing these things, first, it just felt really good to just get that out. It's like verbalizing the fears that I had and not trying to cover them up actually loosened the grip of those fears on my life. But after I shared this, one of the pastors who was in my group, he just said, you know, as you were speaking, Dave, and I was listening, God just really put in my heart to tell this to you, that you will be a father to the fatherless. And then he said, and three or four. (laughs) What? Well, a couple of months went by, and we started to really experience this healing process. We really started to believe that God was resurrecting us. This heaviness we were walking with began to lighten, and, and this darkness that we never thought we'd escaped just began to lift. Around this time, November, we ended up receiving an email from our adoption agency about some children that were placed on the list, uh, the waiting children's list. Three siblings. And my wife and I are both instantly drawn to these kids. Now, a waiting kids list, I think, is one of the worst things that exists on the entire planet. It's a list of kids that typically have too many special needs or too old, and no one wants to adopt them, and they need to be adopted. And so that's kind of what we've always wanted to, to do, is to adopt from that list. And my wife has always kind of wanted to adopt siblings, thinking more of two than, than more than two. But, uh, <laughs> but we called in our agency and said, we're pretty drawn to these kids, and tell us we're crazy because they're a little bit older. They're turning 12, 10, and 7, and we're like 30, and that's not like a big age gap, and it's probably a really bad idea. And they said, whoa, I'm so glad you guys called. You would be amazing parents to these kids. You should pursue this. And so I went back for our second retreat and talked to that pastor who said three or four. I was like, dude, guess what we're thinking about? Three kids. He's like, I'm like, please tell me that this is crazy. And he said, no, this isn't crazy. This is inspired, Dave. This is inspired. And so we look, walk through like, okay, if this is going to happen, then these huge barriers that make this seem like an impossibility are going to need to be removed, and that's going to be a miraculous thing. So we kind of list it out. These things need to happen in order for us to move forward with this. And within a few weeks' time, these things that we never thought could, could change, change. We were surprised radically, and it left us with, there is no reason that we should not move forward with this other than our fears. And as I started to really pray to God, like, here's all the things I'm really afraid about, like teaching some girl to drive in four years, you know, like, <laughs> how are we going to do this? But as I started to lay these fears aside... Love started to just prevail, and I started to realize this is what love is calling us to do. This is what God's calling us to do. So we told our adoption agency that we want to be considered to be the the adoptive parents of these children. 
And at the beginning of the year, they were said, okay, we're going to give you guys the approval, and now we'll send you a referral. And that took a couple months. And then back in March, we accepted this referral to actually become the parents of a 12-year-old girl, 10-year-old girl, and a 7-year-old boy. And here's what, before you say anything, and we leave this Friday to go to South Africa for six weeks to do it. Yeah. Thanks. So please pray for us, okay? It's just been amazing how we have learned that we can trust God only as we have said yes. There are some things that you can only know as you go. Some things you can only know as you say yes to what God wants you to do. And it has been amazing how God has made this possible, something we thought was utterly impossible. And I could tell you story after story after story, but let me just tell you this. God can be trusted. And because he can be trusted, you need not fear. Because he is with you and he loves you. God can be trusted, so you do not need to fear. None of us need to fear because he is with you and he loves you. And if that's not enough of a moral to the story, then maybe let me tell you this. Be careful if you pray for more because you might end up with three. (laughs) So to experience more, love more and fear less. How might God be calling you to love more? What fear might be asking you to just release so that you can trust him and receive his love. Before I close today, I don't want to merely just close with a word of prayer, but I want to invite some of my friends here from our Fire Young Adult Ministry, some some of our young women who put together this amazing dance that we did at our spring retreat last month to the song called Brokenness Aside. As I watched this dance last month, it moved my heart deeply because it was like a A physical prayer showing what God has done in my life, removing these fears, removing all the sins in my life, and despite all the ways I have failed him, God has made something out of my life more than I could ever imagine. There is nothing more exciting than I could ever think about doing than what we're doing right now, and it's because of God's amazing grace. So as you watch this dance, watch it as a prayer that God loves you despite your fears. He wants to free you from them. And he wants you more than anything to receive his love.
pray that all of you know that God loves you that much and his perfect love casts out fear. So as you right now take a moment just to think about what fears 
really creep into your life, really hold you back, keep you from more. Allow God's love just to rush in and push out, dispel, cast out all of those fears. Let your life be overwhelmed by the Father's love for you. His arms are always wide open, and he invites all of us to come to him. Come to him to find life that's truly life. Come to find, to find that more that we are all after. And so, Lord, I pray for every person here, my brothers and my sisters, that they might know just how wide and how long and how deep and how high is your love for them. They've done nothing. None of us have done anything to ever earn it. It is just your gift. And may we just receive that gift. And may we walk in that truth so that we walk in the light as you are in the light. And that light will just cast out all darkness, every fear, every burden, every worry, anything that's holding us back from being the people you've called us to be, people like Jesus. And so, God, by your Spirit, give us that power that we might love radically and with a great passionate love that's willing to suffer, willing to do the hard things, willing to do whatever it's going to take to help to heal the brokenness of those in our world and in the world itself. So, Lord, have your way here, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.